0: My name's Alistair Burt, and I'm a former minister for the Middle East. As such, and as a backbench MP for over three decades, I've taken a long interest in the Middle East peace process in various iterations and lived through a number of moments of significance, some recognised as such at the time and others only later. We're approaching one such moment already recognised as such, the potential for Israel to proceed with elements of the so-called Trump plan, most notably from July the 1st, the annexation of land currently designated by international laws occupied, although Israel disputes both terms. To discuss this, I've recorded for the Conservative Middle East Council in the last couple of weeks, a series of podcasts of around 40 minutes each. And I express my very warm thanks and appreciation to Hussam Zumlat, the head of the Palestinian mission to the UK, to Mark Regev, the outgoing ambassador of the State of Israel, Nikolai Mladinov, the UN Special Coordinator for the Peace Process, and Ian Black, journalist and author, most notably of Enemies and Neighbors Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017. I hope you agree this could not be a more informed group at such a time. All are longstanding friends, and my approach has been to let Hussein Zumlot and Mark Regev largely make their own case, Nikolai Mladinov to explain how he is approaching this particular moment. And then discuss all three with Ian Black. So, thank you for joining us, and I hope you find the talks worth your time, which is much appreciated. I'm now about to speak to Nikolai Mladenov, the former Foreign Minister of Bulgaria, who is now the United Nations Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. Uh, the UN has been intimately involved in this, and Nikolai has been in position for some years and knows the situation very well, and I'm very pleased he's been able to join us. Um, Nikolai, you and I have known each other for some years, uh, when you were foreign minister and I was just the junior minister in the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. How did you get from there to your role now? Thanks, Alastair, and it's great to be um, with you again virtually from Jerusalem.
1: Um, after our government um, resigned and we lost the election in 2013, um, then UN Secretary General um, asked me to join the United Nations as the Special Representative for Iraq, um, which I did uh, because I knew the country quite well from uh, before. I first time I went to Baghdad was in 2005 um, and to help the authorities set up uh, the new parliament. Um, then um, while I was in Iraq, uh, Daesh came into Mosul and took over what about a third of the country. So we were very intimately involved in um, making sure that the Iraqis were able to form a national unity government uh, that later became the, 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 the core the political core of fighting um, uh, the Daesh and, and restoring sovereignty over the rest of the country. Um, back in two, and after that, in 2005, I moved to Jerusalem. Um, as the special coordinator for the Middle East peace process, um, which is a very pretentious title, given the fact that there is no Middle East peace process um, currently. And since then, we've been involved very much in uh, everything from keeping the peace in Gaza, preventing another escalation um, in the south, to desperately trying to restore some dialogue between the Palestinians and the Israelis in the interest of peace and, and, and stability for the whole region.
0: It's really good to speak to you as well and uh you know thank you for for the bit of background you you know the region incredibly well. And so being there from 2015 you you described a Middle East peace process as not existing. What were your expectations when uh, you got the uh, the special coordinator's role? I think back then the situation was very different from what it is
1: today as well and I think my expectation back then was really that we would work In close coordination with our American, European, Russian regional partners to try and create the conditions that would allow um, the Israelis and the Palestinians in the future to return back to the negotiating table. I think it was quite clear, um, even in 2015, um, that the situation was um, that both sides were drifting apart very significantly, um, and that our role, at least this is my belief, as the international community really is try and bridge the gaps and uh, bring them back to a meaningful negotiation. And why do I say meaningful? The first time I used that word, somebody in New York and the UN said, oh my gosh, you're introducing new language. And I said, well, it does make sense to talk about meaningful negotiations because we shouldn't be in the process of just asking them to sit at the table for the sake of sitting at the table and satisfying the international community. There must be a good reason for, the, for both sides to be able to, to bridge their gaps and, and move forward. Um, in 2016, we uh, worked uh, quite intensely um, on producing what came to be known as the Quartet Report, which looked at conditions on the ground and the dangers of to, to the two-state solution. Um, the risks that what we have currently, we had back then as well, uh, would lead to a one-state reality in which uh, one people the palestinian people would be perpetually occupied by uh, by israel and there would be um, serious risks for escalation in the future and for uh continuation of this conflict um, we came up with a set of recommendations which we thought um, uh, are important to both sides um, in order to 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 create conditions for uh, a meaningful discussion on on how to uh, how to restore the hope that the two state solution is, is, is still alive. Um, but since then, that report has pretty much remained just that, a report. Uh, very little of it has been acted on by both sides, both by the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I'm afraid that since then the situation has um,
0: deteriorated even further. You would have come in, I think, right at the end of John Kerry's efforts to to reach a, reach a settlement. Uh, and President Obama and John Kerry, and John Kerry in particular, had devoted a significant part of his, his life and career in into this. Um, so that must have been a very disappointing moment. But then a new president, and a new president who, although it's not unique that a, a first-term president takes it on, there's been examples of that, but quite often it's always been a second-term presidency issue, or more often than not. And a first-term president decided to take it up and put in place a structure of representatives uh, for him who were not uh, the John Kerry-type career diplomat and who had been involved in this process for so long. What was your sense when you heard about the process? What What was your expectation from that process when it was set out?
1: Well, going a little bit back to, to, to John Kerry's time, I think John's um, um, uh, uh, perseverance must be really admired in, extraordinary. in trying to come up a uh, really yeah. extraordinary to come up with um, 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 terms of reference that would allow both sides to work together. Um, I'm afraid that his effort was very much at the end of the Obama presidency, and that, that, I think, pushed uh, both the Israelis and the Palestinians as well as the region to hold back on any um, uh, meaningful engagement um, awaiting a new new president to, to arrive in the White House. And it ended with
0: quite a, if if I recall right, it ended with quite a sharp speech from John Kerry about it. It was a very sharp speech and it ended with a resolution. Yeah, Um, A sharp speech and a resolution which
1: um, I think reflected very much the disappointment and the frustration that uh, Kerry and his team felt um, throughout this period. Um, But, you know, as somebody recently said to me, peace in the Middle East is not a sprint, it's a marathon. So we don't have to be prepared for a very long um, engagement. Um, President Trump, when he he came in, uh, pretty much decided to change the entire way that this question had been approached for a very long period of time. Um, His team was different. It was not made up of the usual State Department uh, functionaries. Um, It was much more political. Um, uh, The file was really centered in the White House. Uh, rather than uh, uh, dealt by the foreign policy establishment in in Washington. Um, And their preferred approach was to work alone on a proposal for a peace plan that they uh, deemed would be acceptable to both sides um, as a basis for discussion, Um, and to do that without really any consultation with the the rest of the international community. Um, They did um, extensively speak uh, to both sides, to the Israelis and to the Palestinians on the ground, um, extensive consultations uh, took place. Uh, we all chipped in and provided our um, advice, but until the plan was ready to be announced, um, it was really not seen by uh, by any side. Um, and and certainly they took uh, some decisions um, which uh, pushed the Palestinian side further uh, further away. Uh, namely the decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem um, and to recognize uh, Jerusalem as capital um, of the state of Israel. Um, now, why did that anger the Palestinians? Certainly because um, the status of Jerusalem had long, for I, I think now more than a quarter of a century, been defined as one of the final status Fine, issues that both sides need to bilaterally agree on. Um, and the U.S. move was seen by the Palestinians as a, um, um, you know, a, a way to, to take that issue off off the table. Similarly with uh, funding for the refugee um, agency that deals with Palestinian refugees, um, etc. So that was a very, very different approach um, to try and come up with um, a new proposal um, that uh, the expectation that the Americans had would become the basis of a discussion, um, effectively changing the very terms of reference for these debates for for, for about a quarter of a century. Um, uh, Looking at it from today's perspective, um, that proposal has been made by the U.S., but it has not become the basis of um, negotiations and it has not become the basis of engagement. In fact, we've um, deteriorated even further to the point at which um, the Palestinians and the Americans are no longer talking to each other, um, and Israel is discussing with the United States possible moves to unilaterally annex parts of the West Bank, um, so the situation has really become far more complex um, since um, uh, since even a year ago. Um, and where it goes from now on is pretty much anyone's guess, depending on um, what decisions are taken um, in Jerusalem as far as Israel's um, uh, you know plans to possibly annex u um, uh, s plans to possibly recognize such annexation. Uh, the reaction of the Arab countries, the reaction of the European countries, um, and certainly the reaction of both the Palestinian leadership and Palestinian people. And I I separate these two because I think we have to take into account that the leadership will have one set of issues um, when they make their decisions how to react, um, yet people might have very different calculations, um, uh, more emotionally driven.
0: I, I'd like to come to the consequences of the announcement in a, in a moment, but but can I stick with the process for a second? Um, when the team was announced, Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, and with the inevitable involvement of Ambassador Friedman in uh, in, in Jerusalem, the American ambassador, it it it, w- it appeared very difficult from the outset to describe the team as in any way neutral on the issues they were dealing with because of their connections with the settlement issue. Um, And as time went on, as you say, the decision by the United States to move its embassy and the like would seem to suggest a negotiating position that was almost impossible for everyone, impossible for Palestinians to deal with this as a neutral body and impossible no matter what um, what what the agreement or what the deal was when it was finally announced, not to have been seen as partial because of the very nature of the setup of the team from the White House who were dealing with this. Um, Do you think that's a fair challenge uh, as to the President of the United States determination right at the beginning to do something new, that the negotiation process was flawed right from the beginning?
1: Well, um, some have said that, um, particularly on the Palestinian side, some have said exactly that um, um, accusation. Um, I would, however, sympathize with um, President Trump's position that you needed a new approach to how to deal with this problem here, um, and that certainly the what has been done in the past has not really produced the results that everyone had wanted. Um, there have been endless rounds of negotiation and and very little has improved in the lives of Palestinians. Um, in fact, you know, settlement construction and, 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 and the taking of land had continued. Um, uh, very little had improved in the security uh, situation for Israelis. Hamas still controls Gaza, rockets um, um, are fired at, at Israeli civilians um, all the time. So one, one, one can sympathize with the idea that there needs to be a radically different approach, perhaps, uh, to this. Um, I would have preferred that that radically different approach would have um, involved more um, substantial engagement with those who have the power to bring the two sides to the table namely Europe the Russians and the United Nations the quartet and certainly where it would have become really important is opening up these discussions to the to the Arabs because I think um uh, I think you know very different today than from from you know maybe a couple of decades ago um on these uh, on discussions of middle east peace the road the, the the role of arab countries, particularly of those countries who seek to work together with israel um, against common security threats and um, and normalize their relations is much much more important um, than in the past so um, i I I, uh, I I would have thought that more consultation with 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 the arabs with the europeans with the russians with the u n on how to come up with um, a proposal that really is the that, that can become the basis of the discussion um, i'm also very wary of the fact that anyone from the outside be that america or anyone else can really sit down and draw a map um, of other people's countries um, we've seen enough troubles um historically from 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 that approach um, and and certainly in this part of the world as well um, so i would have preferred very much that Whatever proposal was put on the table really left both sides to discuss, um, um, uh, uh, you know, issues related to to the final status of um, the uh, the borders, um, uh, the security arrangements, the economic arrangements, and everything else that needs to be um, needs to be worked out. Now that would have been a different approach. Um, unfortunately, what we we have now is a situation in which we have really no basis. Um, on which to bring the parties back together. We have the U.S. proposal, which um, uh, the Palestinians have rejected and they refuse to sit down on the basis of that proposal. Um, We have the so-called internationally agreed parameters, a number of UN resolutions um, that um, the rest of the world pretty much believes should be the basis of a a negotiation. Um, That, you know, the, the, the Israelis and the Palestinians are not able to sit um, down on the basis of those resolutions. Um, and and, and thirdly, we have a set of bilateral agreements between Israel and the Palestinian um, leadership that have developed since the Oslo Accords that are now very much uh, under threat, effectively. Uh, most of them are not, if not all of them, most of them are not being implemented. Most recently, President Abbas, in his reaction to the uh, threat of annexation announced that, that the Palestinians no longer feel bound by these agreements, um, and and this creates a lot of uncertainty for for the future. Um, um, that is why, um, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm just not just careful what I say and how I phrase it because I don't think anyone really knows where it all goes uh, from this point forward. Whether Israel goes ahead with annexation um, and the reaction of the Palestinian street, the Palestinian leadership the Palestinian factions, Hamas and various others, the region, or if Israel doesn't go ahead with annexation, um, I really uh, feel that it's going to be extremely difficult to return back to what we've had before these discussions started. So there might be a real need to reinvent the entire relationship between the um, State of Israel and the Palestinians um, with or without annexation in the future.
0: I, I, I think you characterize it extremely well. Uh, in that um, we've, we've reached an extraordinary crunch point in which either doing something or not doing something leaves an, an unsatisfactory ending. And I just wanted to unpick it for a second. The the general reaction to the announcement in January has been negative apart from Israel and the United States. Um, the Arab League and the representatives of the Arab League at the announcement, but it has hardened up its position since then. And, it seems to have become very focused on the annexation issue because that is the first part in a way of the plan uh, Israel has passed its own legislation to say under Israeli law, it will be legal for the Israeli government to act upon the plan from July the first so that date is fixed in people's minds, although the uh, the visit of Secretary of State Pompeo recently to Israel was generally interpreted by by people as being a little bit of a caution and a pause rather than wholehearted support. And we have a situation in which maybe by accident more than design, we have reached exactly what you were describing, a point uh, where people have got to decide to do something. If annexation is stopped, then what next? If annexation goes ahead, what next? And quite correctly, as you said, by taking a different approach and maybe forcing all of us, into a situation where the status quo, as it cannot really continue because of the lives of people involved, Palestinian lives, the lives in Gaza, the lives of those who feel under threat in Israel because of uh, attacks and, and the like. None of this is satisfactory. And maybe in some way, the Trump plan and July the 1st has given us a particular point at which some of these difficult questions have to be confronted. Behind the scenes, Is there a lot going on to say this is a a Rubicon moment? If Israel acts, then so many bets are off. If Israel doesn't act, what is the Palestinian and the Arab reaction going to be? Do you think there is an opportunity? And is there more of an opportunity for those in Europe and others to say we cannot let this drift on? It's too dangerous. In what way could we could we use the opportunity that's coming towards us like an express train actually to make some progress?
1: Well, it, it, yes, there is a lot of going um, on behind the scenes. Uh, and I really believe that if there's one thing that certainly um, the Trump proposal has achieved, uh, that is that it has shaken up everyone. Um, and it has shaken up all sides, um, Palestinians and Israelis, international community, Arabs and everyone, um, into realizing that they, we can't go on the way that we have until now, um, which has very much been to manage the conflict um, within some reasonable "quote-unquote" um, uh, parameters, limit the fallout of any violence, um, and and continue subsidizing um, um, uh, the Palestinian um, um, authority, uh, pretty much in, in in the West Bank, without really the the the, the, the uh, horizon of a, a real resolution to the conflict. Now. Uh, having been shaken out of that um, situation, um, I think there's one great misperception. Um, um, And that misperception is that the Trump plan is about annexation. The Trump plan is not about annexation. Um, And the possibility of annexing some territory in the West Bank by Israel is one of um, the um, aspects of the plan, but it includes a lot of other uh, Mm -hmm. uh, proposals. So anyone who says, well, you know, we're, we're annexing because the Trump plan Said so is is very much wrong, um, and the American proposal um, I think um, has some constructive ideas in it and needs to be looked at very um, very carefully. Certainly, um, you know, if if it's been rejected by one of the sides, it cannot be the basis for a negotiation. Um, but uh, we need to find that basis um, in any case. Now the question becomes of what happens uh, what happens next, and and I fear that if Israel were to move ahead with uh, unilateral acts of annexing territory in the West Bank. Um, and currently there are different options that are being discussed in, among the Israeli leadership and media, 30%, which includes the Jordan Valley, um, or a more limited um, annexation of just some of the big settlements uh, closer to the 67 lines. Um, um, if, if any of that were to happen, um, I think it would, um, uh, it would really... Uh, destroy the prospect of moving forward um, um, in in negotiations for a very long period of time. Um, um, The Palestinian leadership has already um, decided to to stop coordinating its security and civilian affairs with Israel, um, which has a lot of very um, uh, severe practical consequences on the ground for people. We've heard some uh, very strong statements um, from um, Arab countries. Uh, not just through the Arab League, but individually. Jordan, um, uh, His Majesty the King of Jordan, has been very um, vocal about the risks of um, annexation. Um, most recently, um, we saw the United Arab Emirates yeah. um, uh, all the way to their ambassador in Washington publishing a noped in Hebrew um, in, in the local press here saying, look, you can't have normalization and annexation at the same time, you know, in, in more words, of course, than that. Um, and and just a couple of days ago, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, his highness, as the prince, the crown prince of the UAE, um, also uh, coming out with a statement um, that they're opposed to the quote unquote illegal move of annexation. Now, this this is uh, really needs to be taken into account um, as decisions are taken. Um, and I really hope that uh, debates within Israel. Will continue on on this, um, and 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 I do hope that they will not um, uh, proceed with uh, with annexation. Israeli public opinion is as well divided on this issue. It's not um, a universally accepted um, uh, question, and, and and certainly among Jewish communities, internationally in America, um, I, I suppose in Britain and elsewhere as well, um, this is a divisive issue. Um, what we're looking at now is if if. Um, annexation happens, what would then be the role of the United Nations, for example, in trying to preserve some level of contacts between the Israelis and the Palestinians um, if the relationship completely collapses? Um, and we're looking at some contingency plans for that, um, which are quite important because of a lot of humanitarian and other concerns. Um, but we also need to look at the other op- options. Um, and that is that the current situation of indecisiveness drags on, um, and that there is no immediate decision to annex or not to annex, which would make this unclarity clarity that we have um, today um, continue for a longer period of time, and that would be very uh, much more difficult, in fact to uh, to address. Um, or if uh, Israel decides not to uh, proceed with with annexation. Now, if that were the case, I do hope that that opportunity that may be created in that environment uh, would really allow um, both the Israelis and the Palestinians to reimagine, rethink the entirety of their relationship. And Alistair, I'm sure you recall we've had many discussions on this, um, uh, for example, on the nature of the economic relationship between Israel and the Palestinians, um, which was designed in a different era. It was designed in the 90s. Um, and life has moved substantially on since then and needs to be modernized uh, to the benefit of all. So there are lots and lots of questions right now that we can't really answer and we have to prepare for different scenarios. Um, but my primary task, um, sitting here in Jerusalem, uh, in Ramallah and in Gaza, um, is really to, to see what can be done to restore dialogue. Because without dialogue, without um, all sides talking to each other, um, we're heading for for a disaster, and we need to get Israelis and the Palestinians talking to each other. We need to get the Americans and the Palestinians to talk to each other. Um, we need to keep the quartet um, of international mediators um, um, in place, um, and we need to stay engaged with uh, with the Arabs um, and the region. So it's a very, it's really a precarious time, um, and it can go in very very different directions.
0: Again, you set it out um extremely well from all the all the different obstacles that there are and the, the the problems that are in the in in the way and it would seem to require some some further event in order to promote that discussion that ultimately needs to take place between Israel and the Palestinians in relation to this to what extent does the rift between Ramallah and Gaza continue to make life difficult for the Palestinians to be claiming they are representing all the Palestinian people and uh, to allow Israel to say they haven't really got uh, a partner for for peace. Would it make a difference if there was a serious reconciliation between Hamas and Fatah process of elections? Uh, Would that be seen as a catalyst for on the Palestinian side if Israel was not to proceed with annexation and was to stretch out an opportunity to try and make the most of the rest of what was in the Trump plan?
1: It would be a massive game changer, um, really massive game changer if that were, uh, to, 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 uh, if that were to happen. Um, and the reason why is because the fact that the Palestinian Authority um, has not been in control of Gaza for more than a decade now, um, has led to really two completely different legal systems emerging, one in Ramallah and uh, the West Bank, and one in Gaza. Um, two diff- completely different realities for people. Um, Palestinians in Gaza have had to live through three uh, three wars, um, almost four. Um, um, they've lived under the control of Hamas um, uh, for, for that entire period. Um, but But very importantly as well, it has really blocked the democratic Palestinian uh, political process uh, because it has not allowed for elections to take place so all the Palestinian institutions in Ramallah um, their legitimacy um, can be questioned uh, because of the lack of uh, elections um, the um, political parties um, cannot function uh, meaningfully without elections um, and and this rift really, uh, has been like a cancer for, from a Palestinian perspective. Um, and myself and, and my team have spent endless hours of trying to uh, to bridge that gap, sometimes with little bits of successes, most of the time with great uh, disappointments because of uh, the real unwillingness of both sides in this Palestinian debate to um, make the compromises that are necessary um, uh, to give up weapons, give up the, the, the militant, Build up that is in Gaza um, and and join hands politically. Were they able to do that? Were they able to restore a single unified um, uh, representative government between Gaza and the West Bank? This would allow um, and this would allow really for um, uh, much of the relief that Gaza needs to come in more freely. Um, um, opening up of the crossings, uh, political the political process would be revived. Elections can take place. New. Um, a new generation of leaders can emerge, um, perhaps, and and this is very, very necessary. Um, Unfortunately, um, more than a decade of uh, bitter political uh, struggles between Fatah and Hamas, um, the COVID-19 crisis, um, uh, the threat of annexation, none of this has been able to uh, push them into uh, making the concessions that they need to come together. Uh, Last year, we worked very um, intensely on creating conditions for elections to take place, for example, um, and and all uh, most of the agreements were put in place for those elections to take place, and ultimately um, the decision was never uh, never taken. Um, very very very
0: disappointing, in fact. All of us who have been involved one way or another over the years, ministerially, parliamentarily, those who have observed from outside, we've all seen moments of significant crisis Uh, somehow things continue but as you said earlier things get managed but nothing actually gets better on that scale is it possible for you to estimate just how serious this particular point is at risk is the normalization process which has been going on for some period of time The, the the risk of the prospect of Israel being fully plugged into a Middle East economy with benefits for everyone, uh, being lost. The, the, the issue of of statehood and justice of a resolution for, for uh, the Palestinians being put off yet again, with perhaps a new generation of Palestinians saying none of the uh, peaceful activities to seek change have been successful. Um, the American position being seen to have moved from an honest broker to something quite different. And uh, as you said, a, a, a very split opinion in Israel uh, between uh, a very strong right wing settler movement and others who are deeply unsettled and a stronger reaction from Jewish communities around the world of worry. Is it possible for you to say this this crisis is potentially more serious than any of the others we've seen? which In which case it would make your appeal to uh, parties in the UN, to Arab states, to Europe, to say you can't just let this happen. It, it is too serious. We could face another, uh, a, another serious conflict. Now is the time to pile in on those who must make a decision between themselves in the negotiations and say you cannot let this crisis uh, happen and you cannot let... The status quo rumble on because it is ultimately unstable and it will lead to disaster. Is is this the point to make that sort of plea, or in five years' time we'll be just be talking about the same things again?
1: I believe it is actually, and and I really believe that this is a fundamentally different uh, political crisis than the crises we've we've seen in the past. The reason, perhaps, why many are not seeing it as such um, in the international media or, or elsewhere, is because over the last years, we've said so many times, oh my gosh, this is a serious crisis. And then somehow, because of piling in, we've all been able to handle it and manage it um, and and avoid um, the real collapse toward which the situation is heading. Um, and that is why people perhaps don't see it this time, um, as clearly as, as we who are here and deal with it on a daily basis. Um, But I really believe it is a very serious um, uh, crisis, Um, and I I think it's going to be extremely difficult for um, the Palestinian leadership, for example, to uh, go back to the way things were, even if annexation were not to happen, Um, restoring security coordination, restoring civilian coordination, um, receiving the, um, the uh, clearance revenues, as if as if nothing had changed, um, and I think it would be very difficult for Israel uh, to go back to the way things were managed before, um, um, as well, um, even in the absence of um, an act of annexation. Um, the international community also needs to realize very, very quickly that we've become all too comfortable with managing the conflict for. More than a, you know, for a very long time. I mean, I would, I, even more than a quarter of a century. Um, we're, we're used to managing it, um, and we can't continue to do so uh, for various reasons. Donors, and we see this on a daily basis. Donors are increasingly under pressure um, uh, because of their domestic situations. The global economy is is shrinking. There's a COVID nineteen um, uh, emergency everyone needs to focus on um, um, so we're seeing donors uh, less um, willing to fund um, um, as before. Uh, we're seeing other priorities. Uh, I mean you know look at the look at the region, look at Yemen, Libya, Syria, Iraq, wherever you look there's this massive humanitarian um, and other emergencies that need to be dealt with. So there's less and less attention and, and certainly um, from an Arab perspective, there's a certain level of level of tiredness um, with dealing with this uh, with this file with no prospect of a uh, meaningful and just resolution. Um, now all of this spells trouble, and it spells massive trouble at, at, at every single level um, that we can look at. And and to me, perhaps the first sign of that trouble will be when people st- stop believing that the conflict, Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be resolved in a just manner for both sides through negotiations. Um, Once people stop believing that negotiations are a reasonable way forward, um, then we are likely to see a radicalization in the street, um, would be that religious or otherwise. Um, We're likely to see uh, those who have more destructive agendas in the region um, poke their fingers um, into into this conflict more more actively, um, causing trouble, um, and ultimately that will uh, lead to a spiral of violence, which nobody um, uh, wants to see. Um, and certainly, from an Israeli perspective as well, uh, the situation um, it will not will not look look uh, look positive. I would say that you know, uh, from Israel's perspective, the most really enchanting, if you wish, exciting opportunity for the for the future. It's the prospect of normalizing with the rest of the Arab world, um, of really integrating into the region politically, economically, um, opening up embassies and and the flow of people and the flow of trade um, and the economy. That would be a massive boost to to peace. Um, And if that prospect uh, becomes less likely um, and is more difficult um, and more challenged because of um, the situation on the ground, because of uh, you know, the risk of annexation, because of other other factors, uh, then that would have been really an opportunity lost, a historic opportunity lost. Because I think, given where the whole region is today, um, there's such a need for that cooperation to to come out um, openly and to be embraced by everyone um, that it would be really um, a loss to everyone if, it, uh, if we're not able to do that. So, from from my perspective. Um, it's really you know it is really a critical it is really a critical time and it's a critical time also for Europe um, as well and how Europe um, individually and and, uh, and and collectively approaches this conflict it's no longer enough I think to just say um, well here are our parameters and you know take them or leave them uh, you need a much more active engagement uh, by uh, Europe, Um, uh, with with both sides, not just with one side, but with
0: both sides. And as a final question, are you optimistic that what is clearly a warning from you uh, about the consequences of assuming this can be managed, are you optimistic that your warning will be heeded uh, even now to prevent what you've described as a possibility? Well, that's a tall order to be an optimist in the Middle East in the middle of this. Um, But uh, Anyone who actually goes to them, at least, and takes <laughs> on your role, is an optimist by nature, and, ah, and yes, all I of mean. us, as democratic politicians, uh, have struggled with. We with, must with, be optimistic.
1: We must be optimistic, and we must do everything that that, that we can. Um, and and yes, there is, I think, a growing realization around the world, and 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 here, and in the region, um, of the dangers ahead of us, and of the need to act um, decisively. So. Um, I am optimistic that we can we're making a, a strong case to public opinion, to politicians, to uh to everyone that um of of the consequences of different decisions. Um I'm not I'm not really optimistic that we can manage the fallout if they take other decisions. I mean certainly at the humanitarian level probably we will be able to uh but I don't see the United Nations or anyone really um replacing um the functioning of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, or, or becoming the buffer between Palestinians and Israelis, um, except perhaps for humanitarian and other um, health-related issues. But um, um, but um, we have to persevere. We have to persevere until the very um, until the very end. And, and I'm now, uh, as we speak, involved in a in a last-ditch effort to try and get. The quartet with no preconditions to re-engage with both the Palestinians um, and the Israelis um, and the Arabs uh, to try and find a way out of this um, situation. And um, we've got some, you know, encouraging signs of willingness to do that. Uh, again, if nothing has been decided yet.
0: Nikolay Ahmed uh, UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process uh, thank you for your extraordinary perseverance in relation to this uh, and your commitment to it. And thank you very much for, uh, for spending time with CMEC this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you.